Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Hey, this is Duray, and welcome to Pod Save the People. This week, we're sharing our live show from Portland, Oregon. I want to respectfully acknowledge that we recorded the show in the ancestral homelands of the Chinook Nation. Thank you to Representative Jennifer Williamson for joining us for the news, and to Commissioner Joanne Hardesty for joining me in an interview. One last thing before we get started, I'm excited to announce that Pod Save the People is nominated for two Webbies. We're in the running for Best News and Politics Podcast and Best Podcast Host. In order to win, we need you, our listeners, to go vote at webbyawards.com. You can also find links to vote in our show notes. Let's go. Portland! Hello, hello. <laughs> um, hey, y'all. It's the news. I am Brittany Pagnet at Miss Pagnetti on all social media. Hey. <laughs> and I'm Sam Sinyangwe at Samsway on Twitter. That's great. Pew, pew. This is a message from Clint. What's going on, y'all? This is Clint. So sorry I can't be there tonight. Uh, our daughter is four weeks old, so I'm still on paternity leave, holding it down on the home front. Uh, she is doing wonderful. She is healthy. Mom and baby are doing well. Uh, our baby likes to sleep a lot during the day, not so much at night. So we are <laughs> very sleepy, but very grateful. And I can't wait to listen to the show. So sorry I can't be there. You have some incredible guests coming up. Uh, shout out to DeRay, Brittany, Sam. Love y'all. Wish I could be there. Have a great show. It's going to be awesome. We love Clint Smith the third. I I I I I yes. Well and done. I, I'm Duray at Duray. You made me mess up my name. Do you that know it? Brittany. My name is Duray at D R A Y on Twitter. So, um, what did you all do with your time today, since you couldn't get on Facebook or Instagram? Ooh, uh, my day today, I was traveling all day. I've been traveling since 6 a.m. to get here. I got here at like 6.55. Uh, so excited to make it on time for the show. But the Boeing stuff, you know, we were the last country to, to say that the 737 MAX 8s like weren't going to fly. You know, what's interesting about uh, the planes, the plane that crashed is that it's the first ever jet uh, to have two planes crash in the first year, like since the, the first year the plane came out. So this is unprecedented. What I didn't know before is that there was a patch that was introduced to fix the error, but it got delayed five weeks because of the shutdown. And Trump had given a statement saying that he wasn't going to he wasn't going to keep the planes out of the air because he just didn't want to. And luckily, like, he changed his mind or somebody. I'm sure he didn't do it. I'm sure somebody made him do it. But whoever that person was, shout out to them because that is sort of frightening. And, you know, I was in the airport when the statement came out that if the plane is in the air, they can land and then no other planes can fly. So people are, like, freaking out trying to rebook their travel. But it's better that they freak out and are alive than freak out in the plane crash. So, yeah, I mean, it's wild. I also flew out uh, early morning from Ohio. And flying, you know, before this decision was made, or at least the news came out, the decision was made to ground the flights. Um, you know, I'm getting on the plane. It looks like a new plane, which was a little bit worrisome in that context. And so, you know, I sit down, and I'm, this was the only time that I actually, you know, in the front of the plane, how they, or the front of your seat, 
they have those brochures where it says the model of the plane <laughs> and like the emergency the procedures. This was like the only time where I was like, I hope it's not a Max 8. <laughs> I hope it's not one of these Did Air Max 5 planes. Did you actually read the planes. safety instructions? Uh, yes. The, the whole thing where yeah. you have to have like the, the blow up thing yes. and then you go down the- So you did not read them. It's not a blow up right, right. thing, it's a light vest, Sam. <laughs> a blow up thing. <laughs> I don't know what it's called, but yeah, I would be a nightmare in any type of scenario because I, I don't know what to do. Would, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but it wasn't one of those planes and now they're grounded. So that's the good news. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like, I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local Tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. 
I want to bring out House Majority Leader Jennifer Williamson. Whoop, 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 whoop. Your very own, who represents downtown Portland. We first met Jennifer because she does a lot of work on criminal justice reform, and she recently was named the chair of the Judiciary Committee. So, welcome. Hey. Uh, Sam is actually going to start us off. So, Sam, take it away. My news is focused on one candidate, Elizabeth Warren. Um, So, she has recently proposed her plan to fix America's housing crisis. Uh, And this is called the American Housing and Economic Mobility Act. I have been impressed with how Elizabeth Warren's proposals, not just on housing, um, but broader uh, issues with taking on the banks and Wall Street have been incredibly high quality proposals, really well thought out, um, really far reaching and impactful. And this is uh, no different than that. So this plan would do a couple things. Uh, First, uh, it would provide assistance to people who are underwater with their mortgages um, following the housing crisis. Uh, It would uh, incentivize local jurisdictions to change their local zoning laws. So we talked a a couple of episodes back about uh, Minneapolis and how their zoning laws essentially uh, were created in a way that kept out uh, low-income families and families of color from living in large parts of the city uh, because the only types of houses that were allowed under their zoning laws were these like large houses for single families that you had to have quite a bit of money to really afford. Um, so Elizabeth Warren's proposal would provide a lot of money. The total amount is $500 billion over 10 years. Um, part of it is incentivizing the states around local zoning, but one part that I want to talk about in particular uh, has to do with uh, reversing or directly addressing the legacy of redlining, um, which was a long period of time, actually still happens when you look at the data, um, where uh, black and brown families living in you know, predominantly black and brown neighborhoods um, were unable to move, were unable to become homeowners um, because banks would not lend to them. And under Elizabeth Warren's proposal, um, what she is going to do is for anybody living in a community that was redlined, um, you will qualify for down payment assistance so that you can become a homeowner. Um, so when we talk about, you know, we talk about reparations, we talk about how to address sort of the legacy of systemic and institutional racism and discrimination, um, this is one of her proposals to do just that. Um, so I'm excited to hear what you all think of it. You know, I, this is one of those things that I'm glad somebody's finally touching. I think that housing often gets pushed to the bottom of the list, even though it is so deeply interconnected with everything else. Where you live determines the quality of your school. It can often determine where you're employed. Um, It has health determinants for you, right? Like, so there's so many ways in which housing is important, but it's not a sexy conversation. So we don't hear a lot of presidential candidates bringing it up. So I'm glad that she is. And I hope that that is a, I hope that she's a standard bearer on this, or at the very least, requires everyone else to have a conversation about what they will do about this pernicious issue. And it's also important because we talk about the fact that still today in this country, homeownership is the fastest and most um, intentional way to build wealth in your family, right? So if you cannot own a home, then it is very, very difficult for you to build wealth in your time, let alone over generations. I wonder how it addresses two things. One, how it addresses race, because we know that the language itself in this proposal is actually race neutral. Um, And that in and of itself has some real flaws. Um, The other thing that I'm really worried about 
uh, is what the plan has in store for kind of the rest of the neighborhood. Because if I become a first-time home buyer, I qualify for these for this uh, federal support. I buy a home in this red line neighborhood, and there still aren't good schools in the neighborhood, and there still aren't good restaurants, and the neighborhood is still a food desert, and I still have to go outside of my neighborhood and across zip codes to buy, you know, something from CVS. Then we're going to have the same problem in 10 to 20 years, right? This is why we know that race-blind work like this, race-blind policy, is actually problematic. But if you do not address race in your policy, and collectively as a country, if we do not address the original sins of enslavement and genocide as based in race in this country, we're not actually ever going to fully correct the issues that this policy seeks to fix. I totally agree with Brittany on questions about this policy. My question is, what do you do when those neighborhoods no longer exist? Portland's a great example of Vanport, second largest city in Oregon. um, African-American families lived there when they build the ships at the port during World War II. Dike breaks, floods it out, kills um, children, families. The families are all displaced to the Albina neighborhood. Well, then we build I-5, the freeway through the middle of the neighborhood. We build Emanuel Hospital. We build Memorial Coliseum. We build um, the Rose Quarter. And so there's no neighborhood to return to. So you've been redlined out of your neighborhood. Yes, but then your neighborhood goes away. Come on with the history. I wish all our elected (laughs) officials knew the history like this. Well, it's, you know, and, and, and we still suffer from things like uh, predatory lending. The last, the last case in Oregon, there was a big case in the 1990s over predatory lending, a company called Dominion Capital, that the AG had to come in and shut down um, because of their, um, they, were, they were almost like payday lenders for um, families of color and getting loans and the, and the way that they did their balloon loans. And so what happens is these are communities that are destroyed. The fabrics of those communities are destroyed. And so whether or not someone is helping you with being underwater in your mortgage doesn't put your community back together. Yep. So he, here's the thing is I want to push a little bit on a couple things. Uh, before I do the pushing is we know some things actually do help close the wealth gap. Some things don't help close the wealth gap. You probably heard us say before that it's projected that the median wealth for black people will be zero dollars by 2053, the lowest recorded wealth post-slavery. So like, you know, we've talked about that before. In DC, I'm still fascinated by it. I talk about this a lot. I said DC went to full day pre-K in 2009. One of the benefits of full day pre-K was that uh, it led DC to have the highest maternal employment in the country and in the history of DC all at once. Fascinating, wealth building, good. Now, I will also say uh, that Warren's team, I met with a lot of people who are running for president before they were running for president and a lot of people on the Hill, as we all have. And Warren's team is one of the smartest teams that I've been up, like been able to meet with. I do think Warren like gets the economic thing really well. Her talking about some other issues, I don't understand. Like it just, it doesn't hit the same, but like the money stuff, she is like, she is literally the leader in the space and that is amazing. What, what makes this proposal sort of not race neutral, and I'm open to being pushed on this, is that when we look at the federal government, there are people who worry that it will not be upheld uh, in the Supreme Court around like doing things that are explicitly race-based anymore because of some Supreme Court precedent. But what's interesting about redlining and the effects of it is that 
because most uh, discrimination is still geographically the same, you can actually not target people by race directly and still have the same impact if you do it geographically, because most of the red line neighborhoods are either still the same neighborhoods or the people got displaced to a neighborhood that we can actually track where the displacement happened. So you can do a geographically based sort of reparations type program to undo the negative effects of redlining and do it geographically and actually have the same, have similar impact that you would have if you actually did it explicitly by race. And I think that that is what her team is trying to do here because they are worried that if they do something explicitly about race, it'll just get overturned at the court level. And because, you know, the country's still racist and still segregated, you can actually do place-based things really interestingly. Uh, Sam, can you tell us, because I don't remember, but I know you know, and if you don't, I'm sorry for putting you on the spot, uh, the <laughs> true cost of reparations. The true cost of reparations. Well, it's been estimated to, to be between 5.9 and $14 trillion. So Which is it's like a, a broad range. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I knew he knew to it. To be clear. So when you think about 500 billion, like her plan is aggressive. It's still like nowhere near like what would have to happen. And that's no knock to her. It is like that people are trying to figure out like what does it mean to do something that is uh, truly a repair strategy at scale. And like the numbers that Sam said, it's a lot of money. It would be interesting to think about like direct transfer. Um, I won't steal this from you. Can you talk about the direct transfer stuff? So if you look at the history uh, of this country, and even, you know, I imagine the history here, um, a lot of people were given wealth, right? They were given homes. We look at the Homestead Act um, in the mid-1800s. Uh, all across the West Coast, the Midwest, um, white families, which were uh, pretty much the only families who were eligible. There were some black families who were eligible. It's a very small, tiny amount because obviously during that time, um, black folks didn't have the freedom to move uh, across the country like that. Um, and they literally gave white families homes. It was the largest transfer of wealth in the nation's history. Um, and the federal government said, here's all this land, which by the way, they stole from Native Americans. Um, and they said, you don't have to have any qualifications. You don't have to have any, there's no income means testing. You don't have to, none of that. You just apply here um, and we'll give you a house. And a lot of the wealth that white communities have now is directly traced back to that legacy of wealth because uh, intergenerationally that wealth, those houses could be sold for more wealth, wealth accrues over time. Uh, and so a lot of the wealth that, that many folks maybe in this room and people all across the country have uh, that explains a lot of this wealth gap has to do with home ownership and it has to do with policies like that. Sam, can I add a, a local spin on that? Um, people here, you may not recognize that uh, Oregon had an exclusionary clause in the Constitution. So not only, we were the only state that came into the, into the union with excluding black people specifically in our Constitution. So if you came to Oregon and you were white, you got 650 acres. If you were married, you got double that. If you were black, you couldn't be here at sundown. So it, it's an even finer point in this state because we were founded on that very notion that people of color couldn't own land. And it's interesting that when you think about direct transfer, it's like only when you think about poor people and people of color are suddenly we can't do anything. It's like, why mm -hmm. would we give people things? Like, and you're like, we gave it to white people. You know, like, <laughs> why would we like help? It's like, we did it already. You know, people are like, what's a good model? I don't know, we did it. You're like, literally like, <laughs> look at what we already did, you know? Uh, and that sort of is like the point is that like when we think about the history of the country, we're mindful that we actually have a model for like how to do this and how to do this well and at scale. And it's just an unwillingness to do it for people who are poor, people of color. So uh, to continue the conversation about some of the after effects of the 
inability to build wealth um, for black folks, for Latinx folks, for people of color. I want to talk about cashless stores. Uh, I read an op-ed in Medium by Lucas Thomas, um, which really just has me thinking about a couple of things. So two things are true in particular in particular relevance to this conversation about black and Latinx people. One is that they are disproportionately more likely to be unbanked. So to not have a credit card, to not have a bank account, and therefore to not have access to a debit card and other cashless forms of payment. Um, and they are also more likely to serve in jobs where they are working in frontline service industries. So they're cashiers, they drive cabs, restaurant workers, et cetera, which means that they are um, more vulnerable to suffer from crime like robbery, armed robbery, et cetera. So this puts black and Latinx folks in a particularly difficult and precarious position when it comes to the conversation about cashless stores because there are state legislators around the country who feel like we need to make sure that we are not abandoning communities that do not have access to cashless forms of payment and only use cash. So some of them have proposed laws to say, restaurants, stores, bodegas, you have to accept cash. Well, that actually doesn't necessarily make those very same communities any safer because those are the same folks that are working in the places that often get robbed. Um, and so what is the solution, right? We understand that there are good intentions behind these ideas, but what is really the solution? Um, and Lucas Thomas proposed a couple of things, recognizing full well that the issue here is not just an issue of access, but an issue of poverty. So just to put this in, in perspective, about 6.5% of Americans are um, unbanked, which is lower than numbers in previous years. Um, and we continue to see that number decline. However, almost 17% of black people are unbanked and almost 15% of Latinx people are unbanked. So we still see a disproportionate um, existence of people of color in that space. And half of all people who are unbanked are unbanked because they say they do not have enough money to open a bank account. So this, again, is an issue of poverty and of access. Obviously, the issues of poverty require far longer term solutions. But one of the things we have to pay attention to is actually addressing those issues um, when we're talking about cashless stores. But on the issue of access, there are technological solutions if we just have the will to do it. We know when we walk into a Walgreens or a CVS, there is often a wall full of gift cards. Some of those are American Express or Visa gift cards where you can prepay the amount on there with cash and then have a cashless option um, at your disposal. And so Lucas was saying, you know, people should be able to use those when they go into stores. Also things like um, a vending machine for debit cards. You put in the money, you get out a debit card. Or things like American Express's Bluebird, um, which actually allows people to get debit cards even if they don't have a permanent address or uh, a social security number. And so these are just things that as a person who has been banked since the day I graduated from college, I recognize my privilege and not actually having to think about a lot. And yes, like I saw the bills to say you have to accept cash and thought that that was a good thing, but, but it's really like putting a bandaid on a bullet hole. And so I wanted to bring this conversation here because um, I think that there's just a lot to learn from how we can solve for this. Yeah, I mean, this is something that I also uh, hadn't thought as much about. Um, and, you know, that's because I had the privilege to have a bank account um, since I was about 18. And, you know, looking at this, there appears to be, this is part of a broader shift, I think, into everything being on the internet, right? Um, so if you want a job, if you want to pay for something at a store, if you, whatever you want to do to access opportunity, to access basic needs now, um, almost requires access to the internet. Um, and knowing that, I, I don't understand why it's not free. 
Like, I don't understand why it's not treated as a public utility, as a public good, as something that governments will fund. Um, knowing that this creates opportunities for people, it connects people who otherwise wouldn't have opportunity to, to basic needs. Um, I'm hopeful that as we continue to shift, um, and I don't think that we can stop the shift uh, to doing things online. I'm hopeful that we can continue to think about folks that are being left behind uh, and make sure that they're getting the resources they need to get integrated into that new system. Um, one uh, interesting statistic that I found researching for this is that uh, among the unbanked population, while they tend to be lower income, 40% of them do have a smartphone. Um, so there is the possibility to use some of these apps, things like Bluebird. Um, I think Cash App is trying to transition to allow um, uh, unbanked folks to access uh, a debit card through that. Uh, so there, there's a proportion of folks that already has access to the internet that might benefit from something like this, but still 60% of folks don't. Um, and we have to really be thinking about them. I think the other population to think about is the underbanked. So those are folks who may have bank accounts, but because of their credit scores or bankruptcy or something that's, um, that's happened in their past, it costs them a lot of money to have a bank account. And usually they have um, much lower balances. So then their, the cost of their bank account is much more expensive than if they hit a minimum deposit or something. So it's not just not having access to a bank, but if you have one, how expensive is it to maintain that? Um, and I, I think there's a role um, for policymakers, not just in, in looking at things like requiring cash, but looking at things like state banks. And how do we as policymakers create solutions that take Somebody it- Somebody like state banks. I know, yay, state banks. Um, <laughs> that's how we'll bank our marijuana money one day too. Um, <laughs> Y'all have good money. legislators Let's here. Let's talk about weed money. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Speaking of unbanked. Um, <laughs> but the, the other part um, that I think is a real issue is access to government services. And when you have to pay for them online, if you pay your fines and fees, if you, um, if you need to reserve something, if you need to you know, pay a bill, access a government service, it's becoming harder and harder to do that with cash. So just having access to your own government can be a problem if you're unbanked or underbanked. I didn't even think about that, that there are so many things that you can only pay with a card with. Mm -hmm. uh, this is not, I'm not sponsored by them. The podcast is not sponsored by them, but Square, uh, <laughs> which is Cash App, uh, Square was innovative in the space because Square doesn't require you to have a bank account to open up a Square account. A lot of the, like PayPal, things like that, Venmo, you had to have a bank account to link to it. Square didn't. So Square was one of the first providers that like allowed you to get like a debit card, accept money, like electronic money, and electronic money, is that what you call it? I don't know, <laughs> except payment by card uh, without having a bank account. And those sort of things are really interesting. And I know, because I know the people at Square, that uh, a large percentage of people who are on the platform are people of color, are people who are in poverty because like they don't have to open a bank account. Brittany talked about the 50% of people who don't have bank accounts because they don't have money to put in a bank account. 30% of people though who are unbanked actually don't have a bank account because they don't trust banks, which is interesting. What's interesting, though, is that like about 2,000 banks closed in low-income communities in between 2014 and 2018. So we were talking to people about what solutions could look like in postal banking. I didn't know that a lot of post offices in the country used to be banks for a long time. So because of the podcast, actually, Gillibrand introduced legislation for postal banking to come back. Mm -hmm. AOC is also on the postal banking train. 
to like bring uh, banking at post offices because post offices are evenly distributed across the country, which is a really good thing. And I remember talking to a scholar about like, why do black banks matter? Like do black banks do something dramatically different? And she was like, no, they just lend to black people. And I was like, oh, okay, got it. Um, <laughs> so like when you think about like why people actually go to certain places and don't go to certain places, it's like black banks in the country were actually historically significant because they actually lent to black people in a way that white banks actually were refusing to participate in. And they're just significantly less black banks than they used to be, which I learned about. I think I'm next. So mine is about the First Step Act. Raise your hand if you heard of the First Step Act. Okay, so the First Step Act. Do you know, I'll ask Sam. Sam, what percentage of people did the First Step Act impact? Oh, now you get me on the spot. No, 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 no. You don't know? No, so no, it's no. around one to two percent of people who are incarcerated. You already the knew the answer. I know, yeah, but I was trying to get him. To, I was trying to get him to do it. So we we already Katie. had a lot of questions about the first step back because the num the percentage of people that it impacts in the who are incarcerated is low, and we were trying to figure out like it is good for the people that it impacts, but we could do something really progressive and really dramatic, and like that's not what this is. But it passed, and it'll help people who are incarcerated. Again, we were a little skeptical because some of the things in the first step back, like not shackling women during childbirth, the administration actually could have done administratively. Jeff Sessions could have done that and refused to do it, which is why they had to do it through legislation. So that's like not my news, but that's the context for my news. <laughs> my news is about the budget that came out. And in the budget, so the first step back, the legislation that passed uh, requires $75 million over five years to be like put towards the new things in the First Step Act. His budget has about $15 million, only $15 million allocated to it. So they passed this legislation, made it a big deal, they cared about people incarcerated, and then didn't fund it. And it like is just a reminder to like, treat people like who they are when they show up the first time that like he did not fundamentally change and people were like oh my god he really cares and it was like we told you he didn't care and his budget <laughs> came out and he showed you he didn't care and people were like oh he's gonna fix it and you're like he could have you know they gave 700 billion dollars to the military billion dollars this little millions this was a this was a deliberate this was a deliberate choice not to fully fund the first step act and i wanted to bring that here because like i'm mindful of it and also mindful that this doj is still uh, asking for the death penalty for drug dealers that ice actually detains more people than it's ever detained per day in the history of ice it detains 50,000 people a day which is wild so like trying to keep all that in mind and people really gave him a lot of credit on this first step act and we see that the first step he could have taken was to not fund it. To be wow. clear, I didn't give him no credit because <laughs> I know what it looks like to watch somebody speak out of both sides of their mouths. We all know what it means for somebody to say one thing and always intend to do another. There was never any intention of fully funding this thing that was weak in the first place because this administration weakened it, right? Like, we know folks who want to say all the things and want the credit but don't want to do the work. We all had group projects with them. This is that guy. <laughs> Trump is that guy. But, but here's the other thing, right? Because not only is he barely funding this thing that he wants, that, that not only was he bragging about, but he will run on. Let's be very clear. He oh. will run on it even while he's doing something else. The other thing that's clear, though, about the rest of this um, uh, budget is that this is not even close to his priority. So I did a little bit of research. Here's what the 2020 proposed budget from the Trump administration cuts over the next 10 years. $845 billion from Medicare for older Americans. 
$241 billion from Medicaid for low-income Americans, $220 billion from SNAP, but they want to give them those food boxes that they swear like HelloFresh, but we know we're not. Um, and I they forgot all about that. that yeah, you forgot. We talked about that on the pod. That was a thing. It was a mess. Um, uh, but they, and they also want to include uh, work requirements for uh, beneficiaries of SNAP now. Um, cutting $207 billion from student loans and eliminating the public service loan forgiveness program. No, here's the thing, though. The budget, after all of this stuff, right, so we are clear on what, where the priorities lie, the budget is at an all-time high that they proposed of $4.75 trillion. So they're literally saying we need to spend more money than ever, but not on the things that we said we care about. This is exactly why you can't trust a man with orange hair. <laughs> a toupee at that. Yeah. So, you know, I think a lot has already been said. It just sounds to me like a scam, right? I think when this president is saying that he's going to do a lot of good for criminal justice reform, I think he said that he did more for criminal justice reform than Obama or anybody ever did. He's going to campaign on this. He's going to say it was great. He leveraged Kim Kardashian's platform to make this look like it was, you know, so everybody could see it even if you weren't paying attention to politics. Uh, but in the end, it looks like a scam because on, on the one hand, all of the things that it does that are positive are actually things that could have been done without the legislation things that could have been done if he didn't appoint Jeff Sessions attorney general, if he appointed somebody or even, uh, you know, if he had the sense uh, to pick people who cared about criminal justice reform instead of locking up more people. Um, and then on the other side of things, he's not going to fund it anyway. So uh, I think it's pretty clear that the First Step Act was a scam to me. Uh, and I honestly hope that more people realize this uh, during the campaign and that he's held accountable to that because um, you just know how he's going to use this every single day to talk about how he helped, you know, black people, blah, 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 blah. And I'm tired of that. <laughs> yeah, he could have funded the feminine hygiene products without having a law passed. So, you know, um, it, it, the, the bill itself didn't do a whole heck of a lot. It does some good for some people, as Duray pointed out, but there was a lot more that could have been done. I think to Brittany's point, budgets are moral documents. We care about the things we fund. If we don't fund them, we don't care about them. It's that simple. It doesn't matter what policy we pass, because we pass policies all the time um, that we then don't fund. So that's where you can, you, that's where you figure out what people care about is where they put their money. And one of the things that I think is interesting in this budget is, um, you know, our, the phone vendors and the bail bondsmen are going to make more money out of this budget than will go into the, the $15 million. I think they're somewhere, their bail bonds is at 1.4 billion, phone companies at 1.6. So, you know, clearly the $15 million um, is not going to make much of a dent when we've got families paying bail bondsmen and, and phone contracts to the tune of you know, over a billion dollars. The other thing this budget does is it shifts, um, it shifts a lot of the Bureau of Prison monies into private prisons and into private detention. So it is one, it's, it's a huge budget, a huge increase, and it comes out of the federal government and into uh, Core Civics and Geo Group, and they're making so much money off of detention um, detention centers because they filled up their private prison so now they're shifting to keeping kids in detention centers and making money off of them so that's the, another clear trend in his budget is how he's he's really lining the pockets of the folks who funded his campaign take us away Jim Nipper 
So I want to give it a shout out, Jennifer, um, to the uh, the Oregon Justice Resource Center is here in the house somewhere. We love those people. We we see you. We love you. There they are. OJRC and Portland State University just put out a report that was in the media last week, and it was um, a report done on the women in prison in Oregon. And I've got to believe that these are trends for women in prison all over the country, that Oregon is not unique. Um, And overwhelmingly, the women in Coffee Creek, which is Oregon's only women's prison, faced some sort of abuse or trauma that led to their incarceration, um, which is not, w- when you read these statistics, it's, it's no surprise. Things like 75% said they experienced sexual abuse as children. Um, 69% of them said they had, that past trauma led directly to their involvement in the criminal justice system. When you think about people self-medicating, um, being in relationships that are, are um, abusive, that lead to their criminal activity, um, it's, it's a way of dealing with trauma. Uh, 65% were in a relationship at the time of arrest that involved intimate partner violence. Um, 90% said um, they were abused as adults, uh, emotional abuse, 84% reported physical abuse, and 55% of the adults um, reported sexual abuse. So you can see that um, one of my frustrations in dealing with criminal justice reform is that folks will often say, well, I'm here to speak for victims, I'm a victim advocate, and what they want is longer sentences what they want are mandatory minimums, what they want are more accountability. What I would say is we are not providing good victim services, any, any sort of victim services that are dealing with trauma, um, especially for women and children, and what that leads to is additional incarceration and involvement in the system and intergenerational incarceration. And so if we truly cared about victims and we truly cared about preventing crime, we would put our resources into giving victims what they need to be whole and to look at how we provide restorative justice. Uh, We've got a program in Oregon that um, we were able to pass called the Family Sentencing Alternative, which allows parents who are primary providers for their children, if they're the primary parent, to have supervision instead of going to prison so that they stay with their child and their child doesn't go into foster care. So it's those kinds of programs that we need to be open to creating to stop this cycle and to address the kind of abuse that's leading to um, women being in prison in this country. Yeah. It does, um, it does trend that way nationally. We've, mm-hmm. we've talked about on the on the pod before. This is true of women who are incarcerated all across the country. The other thing that is true, in particular, about intimate partner violence, is that it's estimated that about seventy percent of intimate partner violence or domestic violence actually goes unreported. So that means that the very system that women do not trust to help them is also the system that will then incarcerate them when they don't receive that help. Right? Um, when you also think about in certain places like Texas and other places um, that um, for, for low income people for people who've been in traumatic circumstances, um, prisons are often the only place where they receive any mental health care, right? Like, that is just a perverse relationship. Like, I don't have any kind of nice bow to put on that conversation because that is a really perverse relationship to say I am harmed. I cannot rely on the state to give me any support 
once I've been harmed. I can, however, rely on the state to jail me once I've been harmed because of all of the after effects of that. And if I get jailed, maybe then I'll actually get the help that I should have gotten on the outside in the first place. Um, that's a particularly disgusting thing. And one of the things I'm paying very close attention to um, for the health care plans that come from these presidential candidates is how they address mental health care in particular, because Medicaid for all is important, right, and making sure that everyone actually has access to health care. But if folks do not have access to quality mental health care, then we're only doing half the work. So the other dimension to this is the growth of the prison population over time and how incarceration of women has driven much of that growth. Um, so since 1978, the, for men, uh, there has been a five times increase in the male prison population, state prisons. Um, for women, it's a, it's a nine times increase. Um, so you, you, ha you see this trend line, it's just a dramatic increase in incarceration for women. Uh, and it, incarceration of women looks different than incarceration of men. The offenses that women are uh, convicted of and sentenced to are different types of offenses than uh, for men in, in many cases. Um, so for women, it tends to be lower level offenses. Um, now, you know, we've talked in the past about in general how the police uh, arrest a lot of people for low level offenses much more than for violent crimes or property crimes, um, but that is uh, exaggerated even further when we're talking about women in particular. Uh, and that means that you have uh, women in jail for long periods of time, um, often for very low-level offenses, uh, engage, uh, we're in these contexts that are exacerbating a lot of the issues um, that, that you talked about. And that requires a, a particular focus on this issue, and I think it, this is often not talked about enough. Um, we talk about it mass incarceration, we talk about the prison population, um, but women's incarceration in particular uh, is a, a, accelerating at a much more rapid pace and needs a much more urgent uh, intervention. 80% of women who are incarcerated are mothers, which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and we also know that women who are incarcerated have lower incomes than men who are incarcerated. It's one of the reasons why women don't get out on bail as, as often as men do. I went to Coffee Creek. I did a visit with the Oregon Resource Justice Center at, at Coffee Creek. And if you call DMV, if you're, if you, you, probably live here because you're here, but uh, if you <laughs> call uh, DMV, you might be visiting, who knows? Uh, if you call DMV, it might be a woman at, C at Coffee Creek who actually answers the phone. One of the, one of the big jobs uh, at Coffee Creek is actually answering the phone at DMV, which I learned because I spent a lot of time uh, there the last time I was there. And what's interesting is that there are a host of other things that people don't think about, and like I certainly haven't thought about much. Not only am I not a parent, but I'm not a mother. And you think about things like in Alabama, they have a whole breastfeeding um, program for women who have children while they're incarcerated. So in Alabama, for instance, the mother has to, the mother and child are separated within 24 to 48 hours. The child is permanently removed, but they still let the mother breastfeed so that like, so that she can breastfeed and there's counseling, postpartum and pregnancy counseling. And like those sort of things are actually not the norm in a lot of prisons. We have about four or five prisons in the country where there are nurseries. So women can actually be with the baby incarcerated for up to six months or a year. There's a handful of those facilities in the country. I was talking to Piper, who you know because Piper Orange is a new black. And when she was, she and I were talking about him, she was like, the thing about those facilities is that they're good facilities, but to qualify for the program, you almost have to be so perfect that like you shouldn't have been incarcerated in the first place. So she's like, it's this sort of weird thing that's happening. I went to Germany uh, to do a tour of prisons too. And like, you see the same issues with women incarcerated 
all over the world. In Germany, it was sort of interesting because uh, German privacy laws extend to the prison. So like everybody gets their own cell and a key and, and things like that. So you saw women able to just move around in ways that are not the norm here. You also saw people playing with like visitation with kids. So like, I don't know if you've been to many prisons, but some prisons where the kids come in are like the most sterile. You would never want a kid like if the toys are bad. It's like no paint, you know, like and then some of the prisons that are doing this work much better, like the rooms where families sort of rejoin are actually like beautiful spaces and they have real programming. And it takes people like you because prisons lost a lot of money with the crime bill to do programming. But it takes people in communities to come in and like help them make it better. And to Brittany's point around mental health, the three biggest mental health facilities in the country are actually prisons and jails. The single biggest mental health facility is also the biggest jail in the country, which is the Cook County Jail in Chicago. Uh, so people like often don't think about like what it means that most, like Brittany said, most of the people getting mental health services are in prison or in jail. And like, again, the three biggest mental health facilities are prisons and jails, which is wild. We have a lot of work to do. It is one of those things that we believe, and I don't want to be Debbie Downer here, is that when we think about the outcomes that we track, a lot of the outcomes actually aren't getting better. And not to say that like they can't get better, but one of the things that I think is happening in this moment is that people are confusing a change in conversation with a change in outcomes. And I worry that in this moment that people think because we're talking about the issues more and because there's more language about the issues, that the issues are changing. And like we actually need to make sure that we stay laser focused on the outcomes. So the prison population is not necessarily going down. The number of people killed by police, not necessarily going down. The wealth gap, not really closing in the way that we thought it would. And like that means that like the energy and like the performance of the work is really interesting, but like the work is the work. And we got to make sure we keep our ears to the outcomes. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com, and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com store to shop. So I'm going to welcome to the stage now Commissioner Joanne Hardesty, originally. Here we go, 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 here we go. Okay. I didn't forget about you. So you are from, we're from the same place, from Baltimore. 
excited to have you here. You know, we, are, huh? we, we, I don't really talk to people before I interview them, so we're meeting for the first time. Here we go. And you are the first black woman to be a city councilor in, or commissioner in Portland. That is correct. Boom, boom. I have a lot of questions. I'm excited to talk to you. Why, uh, why commissioner? You've done a lot in your time in Portland. I have. You've been in a host of roles. You've made an impact. Why, why the commissioner role? Anger. Okay. I showed up at City Hall in October of 2016. Okay. There was a secret negotiation to renegotiate the Portland Police Bureau's contract. Secret. Secret. And we found out it was on a fast track for passage that day. That day. Now, the mayor was leaving the country in December. He didn't run for re-election. He wouldn't have to live under the contract that had been negotiated. So I show up. City Hall is surrounded by riot police. Homeland Security, Portland Police, TriMet, Gresham. I mean, surrounded. Now... I'm from Baltimore, so, you know, didn't stop me from going in, right? Ready. (laughs) But my first thought was, how many people were intimidated and just decided not to go into that building? And so then I go in, and there are police inside. And people are angry, rightfully, because it's like, wait a minute, how do you negotiate a contract uh, a year before it's going to expire in secret and now have it on a fast track because every police department in the country will tell you that they're overworked, underpaid, and don't have enough officers. And that's exactly what the message was here in Portland. So we get inside and people are upset. The mayor closes down the meeting and they go upstairs and have their city council meeting out of the public eye, but we could watch it on TV. Meanwhile, People stayed because they came to have their voice heard and they weren't leaving. And so ultimately, the mayor decided to push people, and this was men, women, elderly, children, to have the police push them out of City Hall to lock it down. And you were there that day. And I was there. And I just thought, we must be able to do better than this. This is not what a representative government looks like. And I do not want to live in a city where the public has no input on public policy. So anger did it. Now, how has it been so far? This police department still has some issues, which might be an understatement. (laughs) How's it been so Uh, far? How has it been so far? I got Portland pulled out of the Joint Tourism Task Force. Boom. I got us to slow down on requiring people to update buildings that need retrofitting if earthquakes happen, because instead of helping people do that, we were on a fast track to just mandate that people do it by themselves. We're talking historic buildings, we're talking faith institutions, some of the oldest African-American faith institutions and others. And I just thought, you know, we should be working with people We should be creating opportunities for us to create a better city rather than mandating people just do something by an arbitrary date. And so got some flack for that. Uh, But I got two other people. I can count to three. 
Okay. I only okay. need three votes on the city council. <laughs> I, she said, I'm here to play the game. Here we go. I could count, so I got that done. And then the third thing that I'm most proud of is that the Central East Side Industrial Council was in the process of setting up what they call an enhanced service district, which basically means private business owners agree to tax themselves money so that they can hire private security to basically push houseless people out of the community uh, and to kind of mandate a community standard, right? Um, Now, we have a big houseless problem in Portland. Rents are exorbitant. Uh, We've done some good things about trying to contain that. Uh, But if this one was going to be modeled after all the other ones, what would happen would be we would continue to arrest people because they were houseless or because they were poor or because they were black um, or we could do something different. And so I had the opportunity to bring the Central East Side Industrial Council into my conference room along with Right to Survive, which is an advocacy group for houseless people in our community. Yeah, give them love. You know, they're, they're, they do great work. And I said, can we think about this from a humane perspective? Can we think about how we can work with all our community, even our houseless community, right? Um, and so we came out with a plan so that the houseless community would have three seats on the board, because, you know, they normally give us one seat, right? And you're supposed to speak for everybody, right? <laughs> um, so they have three seats on the board. They will be training the community security. But they will also be hired to be community security, hired to do garbage pickup, right? It's about giving people dignity and an opportunity to get a step up rather than criminalizing people because of the condition they're in. And so we got that passed through the city council. So, so far, so good. Now, what are the agencies that you manage? Oh, I am privileged to manage the best fire bureau in the country. Okay. I manage the Bureau of Emergency uh, uh, Management, as well as the Bureau of Emergency Communications. So that's the 911 system. Now, have you learned a lot? I'm fascinated with 911. Just in general. Right. <laughs> uh, have you learned a lot about 911? I have what have learned, you learned that you, can tell, that you can tell us all? What I've learned is, A, a lot of people call 911 because they're uncomfortable with who's outside. Hmm. Uh, and they want the police to come and, like, remove this person that's making them uncomfortable. But now you're in charge of 911, so what's that but like? But now I'm in charge of 911. <laughs> and so what will happen in the four years I'm in office is we're going to totally revise how 911 operates. What we're going to do, what my vision is, is that 911, if somebody calls and says, we think somebody has a mental health issue, we're going to actually have a mental health professional triage the call. Shocking. If somebody calls and says, I think somebody needs medical attention, we're going to have a nurse triage the call. It is my goal to make sure we send the first, the right, first responder to the right call at the right time. In no circumstances should we be sending police for people who are suffering from mental health issues. Because people are uncomfortable with what somebody looks like outside their door. Right? So I've got what, four years, less seven weeks? Uh, now one's going to be a happen. whole different thing here. 
But it's going to happen. It's going to happen because you have to have a vision of where you're headed. And if we just accept, and that's, I think, what the biggest problem is, people have accepted that police kill people who are ill. That cannot be, we cannot just sit back and say, oh, well, you know, he, uh, he looked like he was dangerous, right? That is not acceptable behavior. You know, a third of all the people killed by a stranger, uh, a third of all the people killed by a stranger in this country is killed by a police officer. It's really wild. That's it's, shocking. It's one of the things when people tell us we're being dramatic, we're like, no, the truth is dramatic. Right, right, right. Uh, you started to talk about the police union contract that yes. made you angry. Yes. We spent a lot of work on police union contracts. Yes, I've been reading your research. You've done some fabulous research. Thank you. Thank you. Would love to know what your thought is. So this contract's going to come up soon. Yes. What can be done about it? Well, what it's going to take is an organized community that starts making sure they are putting pressure at the right places. Now, I have been involved in, in the last three police contracts before the secret one, okay. right? And so I've watched what happens in that process. What we've done as a matter of public policy over the years is given all our authority to the police. Okay. It is in the public's interest that public servants are answerable to the public they serve. That doesn't happen today. In fact, in the police contract, I was told the other day, because I mentioned an officer's name uh, from the city council podium, I was told afterwards, you can't do that, because the contract says you can't say anything. You can't say anything about an officer that might make him uncomfortable or embarrassed. I'm like, how does that get into a contract, right? It is, uh, it's section 20.2 of the Portland Police Bureau contract. Uh, it's the only, so we did this, we did the only and first study of police union contracts in the country in the 100 biggest cities, and we're now doing uh, 500 more, and it's the only city in the country that has a clause. It literally reads, the officer has to be disciplined in the least embarrassing way before the public and the department. That is what it says. Uh, the police filed a grievance against uh, the commissioner. <laughs> And the mayor, uh, two commissioners and the mayor, uh, uh, because of statements that they said at the podium. Yes. Well, it wasn't even at the podium. It was just like the the media asked, well, so what do you think about the fact that Textgate, that there's a police officer that's actually texting with a white supremacist, said, we're not surprised by that. Are you surprised by that? (laughs) Right? We weren't surprised. And so, yes, now there's a grievance, and so we have to wait for the grievance to work its way out. And so that's one piece. One piece, what we have to do is rethink... What is the public value of having police officers? So we have to not just tinker around the edges of this contract, because we've been tinkering for 20 years, and people are still dying at the hands of the police, right? So we have to think, rethink, what is the role of police, right? And police only have two jobs. Their job is to solve crime and prevent crime. That's the only two jobs they're supposed to have. And so anything that isn't about solving crime or stopping crime should be taken out of their portfolio. They have expanded their job to the point whereas now they think they're the go-to for everything. Got a mental health call? Call the cops, right? Uh, you, somebody needs housing? Call the cops, right? Uh, because uh, you need uh, security in the school? Put cops in the school, right? If we took all the cops out of Portland Public or out of all the schools in the Portland metro area, and we took all the cops off of the special task force, like the gang enforcement unit that couldn't find a gang member that wasn't black if they fell over it, right? (laughs) Um, And we just actually retrained them all 
to walk a beat and learn the community that they're supposed to police, we'd have more than enough police officers, right? The problem is, is that we've given our authority to the union. We got to take it back, right? It's in the public's interest to have public servants that actually answer to the public, right? So that means that we need a contract that is, is totally new. We don't take what they have now. We just walk in, and that's my plan. My plan is to walk in Uh-oh. and go, boom. Uh-oh. I, here's Uh-oh. a contract. Let's talk, Uh-oh. right? I'm um, ready for that. But the only way, the only way we're going to be able to do that is building the community support to make that happen. Now, my big votes at city council, I'm an organizer, right? You're an organizer, right? Now, City Hall has never seen an organizer like me, right? Because all I know is organizing. And I know, I know how many votes I need, and I know that I need to fill the city council chambers with any vote that I'm taking that people are a little squeamish about, right? And so for this contract, we're going to need a concerted effort that starts January of next year that is nonstop in the city council's face about what we expect from policing in the city of Portland. Boom. Yes. Now, I'm interested uh, because you spent a lot of your time outside the system. Yes. And you've been in the system before. What does it, there are people who say that you really can't make a difference inside, that the best change comes when you push on the outside. What do you say to those people is the first part. And the second is like, what have you learned about the city now that you're a commissioner? Like, what, being on the inside, I'm sure you get to be in rooms and meetings and around things you just weren't able to be around before. Like, what, did, what has that been like? So the first thing is, as an organizer, I know that the best strategy is an inside-outside strategy, right? You must have people outside pushing, 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 but you actually have to have somebody inside willing to, like, listen and make the change happen, right? And so you have to have both. You have to have willing politicians that are say, hey, you know, my people are making me do this. I, I, this has to happen, right? Because my people are demanding it, right? Uh, but you also have to have an organized uh, uh, opposition that's constantly uh, on message and saying very clearly that public servants work for the public. And the public has an interest in making sure public servants do the job they were hired to do, right? That, that's absolutely what has to happen. It's, and, it's, and one can't happen without the other, right? Got it, they've got to be in sync. Now, what I've learned inside City Hall is it takes forever to do anything in City Hall, right? I have more gray hair now than I did seven weeks ago, right? <laughs> Why does it take so long? What's going on in City Hall? You know, what I have finally come to the conclusion is that City Hall operates in a constant state of fear. Hmm. Afraid of what? Everything. Okay. They're, they're, they're fearful of making a decision because it could be wrong. And whether you're talking about director level or commissioners, right? Because there are repercussions for making the wrong decision. But here's what I've learned. It's like, I'm old and I make mistakes, right? And if I make a mistake, I just say, oh, my bad. I'm sorry. I, you know, I didn't know, right? We have to just accept the fact that no human is perfect and we will all make mistakes. But what's missing is just that willingness to say, well, let's just try this. Maybe it'll work, maybe not. But if we don't try it, then we continue to do what we've always done and just moan about why things haven't changed.
Now, one of the questions we ask everybody uh, is, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? I had the privilege of working for a fabulous woman when I hated politicians. And this is like over 20 years ago, right? Her name is Beverly Stein. And she told me, every person has value. And as my staff person, it is your job to figure out how to connect them to where they're passionate, right? What is their passion? Figure out what their passion is and connect them to that. That was my job in her office, right? I never, ever, ever forgot that. So that's one of the things that has really framed my, my public life, right? It's really about where's the connection? What is it? What's the, how do I connect this person to people that are sharing that same value, that same dream, right? Because they can help. There we go. That's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out and make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And don't forget to vote for us as Best News and Politics Podcast and for me as Best Podcast Host at WebbyAwards.com or just go to the show notes for direct voting links. See you next week. Mm-hmm.